Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit thejazzsession.com for all of the interviews that have been on this show, along with links to other jazz sites, live jazz news, links to my jazz writing, and a whole lot more. At the site, you'll also find a link to the cause of the month. This time, it's the cause of two months, because I actually took several weeks off at the end of June and the beginning of July, following the slew of interviews from the 2007 Rochester International Jazz Festival. The cause this month is the Music Maker Relief Foundation. Please click on the link and give them money. Thank you. This show features guitarist Gene Bertoncini, who has been everywhere and done everything since he started off in New York years ago. All of the music you're going to hear on the show is taken from Gene's album Acoustic Romance on the Sons of Sound label. The album contains one gem after another, including this, The Shadow of Your Smile. I'm sitting in a, a very plush practice room outside uh, one of the rehearsal halls at the Tritone Jazz Fantasy Camp, which is a place where adults get to come and play jazz. And every year, one of the instructors is Gene Burton-Sini, and uh, he's taken some time to talk to me. I thank you for sitting down with me. Oh, pleasure, Jason. Now you, uh, you've actually been in Rochester quite a bit over the years, and even just recently. You just played a set at the Jazz Fest. You just played two nights with Bob Snyder. What is it that keeps you coming back to this area, first of all? Well, it it feels like home to me. I, I started uh, maybe forty years ago, and I feel like it's it's my second home. And I I uh, it's also 
I've gotten to be fairly well known in this area, so I feel, I feel like a little bit of a small celebrity. So that makes you feel good. It's good for my head. <laughs> and uh, I've done, I've learned how to teach up here, and it's it's meant so much to me to be become a uh, an adequate teacher, and <clears throat> and also pl- to play with all these great musicians that come through Eastman, and uh, they're all they're all. Great to play with, and, and and some of these guys have been my teachers as well, like Bill Dobbins and and uh, Ray Wright and, and uh, Harold Danko. They're such great musicians, and so talk about learning how to teach. What does that What does <clears throat> that mean? What skills did you have to pick up to be able to impart what you know to other players? Well, you know, I just uh, the first time I came up here, uh, what I had just uh, was recommended by actually Manny Album, who I'd done some work with recording wise, and I got into a a classroom with about seven guitar players and I and uh I you know I just started speaking about what I was doing you know on the on the instrument harmonically and linearly and I found that uh in fact I did have uh, uh an approach which I I wasn't that aware of so when you when you have to teach you have to say well what am I doing actually um, how, how did I how did I develop this and I and I and I thought about actually the scales I practiced and the songs I learned and and my experiences working with other people, and that that stuff becomes more formulated as you have to do it. And I was lucky to have the chance, and they took a chance initially having me here. So has teaching changed the way you play or the way you arrange? <clears throat> has it made you more conscious of it, or has it just made you more conscious of what you already? I think doing? it. I think you 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 learn you learn from teaching. I don't quite know uh, how, how to specify what I learned, but. I think when you're, it it just uh, solidifies what you know. You know, if you start talking about it, exp- explaining it, and then uh, so, and then you surprise yourself. Oh, I didn't know I knew that. <laughs> so that's all. It's all very important. You you really don't learn anything until you teach it. I mean, you really don't know anything until you teach it. Until you express it like that. talk about some of your early instruction. You grew up in a very musical household, right? Right. My, my folks, uh, my dad particularly had a guitar and he used to love to sing and play Italian songs. And my oh, the, Everybody came to our house at Christmas because that's where the, the music was. <laughs> so, When did you first pick up a guitar? Was when it your I was dad? about seven. I was about seven and, my, and I had guitar lessons at that age and I used to sing and play and and uh, and uh, and I, I just took to it. I I think music uh, is a is a great gift. I have no. I'm not taking an ounce of credit for the ability to play, the desire to play. It's just a tremendous gift, and uh, I'm so grateful. 
when did you start thinking about music <clears throat> more seriously or really deciding it was something you wanted to kind of explore a little more deeply? We, uh, it, you, know, when I, you know, when I was a kid, my, my mom and dad used to take me and my brother to whatever dances they were. I found myself hanging around the band, you know, just sitting on the stage watching the musicians. And, and I just, uh, uh, that was the start. And, and, and uh, my brother happened to be a great accordion player. He's a little older than me. And uh, he helped me learn a lot of tunes. And, uh, and I, I was doing a television show in the morning called The Children's Hour on NBC. And then I wandered next door. Uh, and I was just a teenager, and this wonderful guitarist, Johnny Smith, was there playing. I asked him for guitar lessons, and <clears throat> that led to uh, more hanging around studios, NBC. And in those days, uh, Johnny was playing with Stan Getz and one, Eddie Zafransky. All these wonderful musicians were part of the NBC studio mu music. And Was he playing seven strings <clears throat> in those no, days? No, Johnny. No? Johnny was okay. playing... Just the only thing different about Johnny is he tuned his low E string to a low D. Oh, okay. And he does that, and Mundello does that. Okay. But uh, you know, the guys now like Bucky, Pizzarelli, and Howard Alden play seven string. Right. There's a lot, uh, quite a few. I think uh, Jimmy Bruno too plays seven string. And um, and so I I I started playing in clubs when I was sixteen, seventeen years old, and I'm grateful again to my family for having the trust in me to stay out to two, one or two in the morning. And and I was just a, a, a like 16, 17. So that's when I really, I, I mean, I had the option to go to college, and I went to college, but uh, I uh, I didn't like what I saw in some of the nightclub work. It was just, uh, I was from a family, baseball and apple pie and, and all that love, and some of the seedy things that happened in jazz clubs with drinking and stuff like that. In those days, there was a lot of smoking and a lot of drinking, etc. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, I wanted to go sort of lead a, a different existence. But the music <clears throat> was with me in school. And when I got out of school, I got a job right away at a jazz club in Chicago called the Cloister Inn, opposite Carmen McRae, with my own group from school. And <clears throat> I was kind of back into it then. Now, you mentioned school, but you went to school for architecture, right? Which right. Which is uh, yeah. Yeah. A, an interesting musical path, although not, not unique to you. Other musicians, the, well, the one that pops to my mind, I remember Art Garfunkel used to always tell stories about going to architecture school and the effect that it had on the way that he approached music, oh, the yeah. kind of structure of music. I didn't know. I know, I know the actor Jimmy Stewart was yeah. an uh, architect. And I think, I think the, the study of architecture is the greatest study because you're not only involved in in an art form in a sense you know because you're designing but you're also involved in of uh, the uh, the functions of human uh, human beings how they function in and the designing of say for instance we had to design a hospital we had to design a kindergarten we had to design uh, just a private house or and uh, a shopping center uh, resorts so you start thinking about all these aspects of life and and it makes you more aware of uh, people's needs and and of course, I was a great fan of Frank Lloyd Wright and and uh, his philosophies. And Thank you. 
It's interesting to me too because structure. You, you do so much solo work, and it seems like structure is so critical to that. When you're the entire soundscape is all contained in your two hands, do you think that your architecture studies kind of helped you visualize the way things are constructed and crafted and how to build kind of well, a solid foundation? Yeah, even the, even the first part of that, which is to, to be to be to make a presentation. And in order to make a presentation, an architect has to has to do a set of drawings. You know, the whole concept to present to a client. He he presents this uh, this uh, uh, you know sketch, or at least a sketch, or a watercolor, or whatever. Uh, and he has a concept all. So I I uh, I've always believed in in having a concept and a and a and a plan for almost everything I play. Except there are certain things I didn't plan. Because they almost need the spontaneity. Like I play a tune like it had to be you or just a standard. Like I don't care about arranging it. Just stand on its own. But then like a theme from a movie, I try to capture some of the feeling of the movie and, and all of that and and uh, and present something that's uh, that's really kind of worked out for the audience. Uh, and so and, and within that, structure there's always a chance for an improvisation uh so that uh, but there is definitely uh, a, a need to, uh, for me to to present something that's worked out like an architect would do and when you talk about presenting for example the feeling of the movie does that does that mean that knowing the lyrics to the tunes you play is important to you so you know what the story was supposed to be that too and and uh and uh, and uh, and having you know just the opening scene of of the sandpiper where where the I know Jack Shelton played it, but it's the shot of the Pacific Coast, and and it's the whole feeling that uh, comes over you when you when you play. So I try to capture that in that arrangement, or I do an arrangement of uh, uh, of uh, Bang the Drum Slowly, which is a wonderful story about with Robert De Niro, and and it's dramatic and and it's sad and it's f funny, and I try to capture all of that stuff. And yeah, it's important to have that and the lyrics of a tune are, are so important uh, i mean you if if it's a tune about missing somebody or or uh, uh, longing for something it should be expressed in the music you know you uh even while you were in school studying architecture you were still playing and mm. uh you said as soon as you got out you were able to score a pretty good gig. How did, how did that happen? You make it sound very easy, but how did you actually end up playing at the Cloister? And then... I paid the guy a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I just, uh, well, actually, when I was my final year at Notre Dame was the first Notre Dame Jazz Festival, and it's become a great event. Uh, this friend of mine, Tim Ryan, who later became a CBS sportscaster, was involved in all of that. And uh, a lot of a lot of great people, and I was amazed at all the all. I never knew about jazz festivals, and the Indiana Vers University big, big band was there, and and I entered my little quartet there, uh, and I played, and <clears throat> and uh, we didn't win anything at the at the at the competition, but there was an agent there from Chicago named Freddie Williamson who also managed Anita O'Day, and he thought it would be a great idea for a group from Notre Dame to play in a Chicago club, basically. And, uh, and uh, I, so uh, there's a chance I couldn't uh, 
turned down, so I went I went and played in Chicago. And my biggest audience was Paul Horning, uh, the, the quarterback for Notre Dame at that time. <laughs> he used to come back there all the time. <laughs> He just kept wanting to hear the victory march. <laughs> I guess I don't know. I was great. I was grateful, and <clears throat> to be in that in that scene, and that's what just got me right back into it. I talk a little bit about the scene. You said you'd had kind of a negative reaction to it the first time. Some of the, yeah. the kind of extraneous elements of the right. scene. What was it like when you got back into it and were doing it professionally well, it was, again? It was thrilling. You know, just thrilling. I mean, uh, to be uh, to be in the same town like it was Chicago and. And on on our off uh, my off night, or I used to go to to the London house and see Oscar Peterson playing, and then I'd go to uh, Mr. Kelly's and see Johnny Frigo. At that time, he was playing bass, and hmm. Dick uh, Dick Marks, pianist, and <clears throat> it was just uh, 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 just thrilling. And uh, and uh, I still didn't know if I was was going to be a musician or an architect till I came back to New York and actually got a job with. Uh, a protege of Frank Lloyd Wright, which lasted eight days. I, I, I had a job <clears throat> with a, a big band, Richard Malpey, on the weekend, and there was a guitar part, and I messed up the guitar part. You know, it was a dance; nobody heard it, but I felt, I felt just terrible. So I said, "No, I got to practice," and that's exactly the night. It was a Saturday night in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> the next Monday, I told. This wonderful architect, David Henkin, who I worked for, he's the protege of Frank, that I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> he said, well, you just <laughs> you just, <laughs> just started. I said, well, uh, you know, I just got to play the music. <clears throat> and uh, it turns out David Henkin was the the, the designer of uh, Rudy Van Gelder's uh, recording studio and uh, in, in, in Englewood. Yeah, and uh, so it's a, a mystery. How, it's funny how life works. The one architect I worked for is the architect who designed the studio, which I later recorded with Ahmad Jamal and and all these great and and my own trio with Michael Moore and uh, and a lot of recordings with Hubert Laws, all took place in, in Rudy's studio there. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Now, what year did you move back to New York? I was I was in I never left New York. I, you I were in Chicago, in, there, yeah, but I was in Chicago after school. I just right. stayed. I just went right from school to Chicago. Sure. And uh, and, uh, I just came back and lived with my folks for a couple of years. Then I got an apartment in town around the corner from my dad's restaurant. So I was always well fed. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, later on when I got a job with The Tonight Show and and The Merv Griffin Show, I had both those bands over to the restaurant for dinner. And Doc used to come in all the time after that to have dinner. And Clark Terry and, and all these guys love my dad's place. Did you uh, end up with those two jobs because of the previous experience you'd had working in the studio for NBC? Or? Uh, yeah, well, uh, uh, actually, uh, the early Merv Griffin show, I had a singer in my band named Vince Morrow at Notre Dame. And he he became, uh, <clears throat> he, he got a part-time job as a, <clears throat> as a guide at NBC, you know, well, show people around. And he was around a Merv Griffin show, and uh, he did. He had to do that. His one of his assignments was to see the people in at the Merv Griffin show. Got to know Merv a little bit, and and told Merv, I know this guy was a guitar player. And there was a show called Play Your Hunch, where the people had to guess who the real musician was or who, who the real shoemaker was or whatever. Right. And uh, so I got to play with Merv with uh, uh, 
a trio, Sonny Igo and George Shaw, a bass player. And Merv liked so much what I did that whenever he needed a guitar player, he, he hired me, and, and, I, and we used to co-lead the things. Sonny Igo would... And so I got... I was... I just went right back in... right into the studio work, and it was a little easier on my folks to see that I went into music because they could see me on television once in a while. And I said, well... But they never... I, I always tell my story. Can you get a minute for a little story? I came out of school and, and uh, got this, actually got an award, an architecture award. And, and, uh, and a few months later, I'm playing in a, in a bar in the Bronx <laughs> and uh, with Mike Maneri. You know, we had a little trio together. You know, and uh, we were up on top of the bar, and my my father, who had just seen me graduate and with honors and whatnot, and hardworking Italian man, struggled to put me through college. And uh, he comes down to the bar and sits at the bar uh, with, needless to say, shady characters around him. <laughs> and I'm playing, and I'm wondering what what is he thinking, you know? And when I uh, when I come off the the bandstand, he puts his arm around around me. And he says, "He says, son, whatever you want to do." I'm behind you 100. percent How many? How lucky can a guy get? I That's mean, amazing. Is, I could never play enough music for my dad. So, uh, and if uh, and uh, that was that's the kind of encouragement I wish every par- parent, you know, would give their, their instead of worrying about things like security, if if they have a talent or something like that, to encourage the talent and and uh, this one life we have here would be great to. Yeah. Give it a shot. You That's know. a beautiful thing. Yeah. Quite a guy, your dad, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> God bless him. And my mom, too. She was made the best ravioli in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and she was encouraging, too, yeah. Now, you've been on so many recordings in so many different contexts. Um, yeah. I mean, f- from all the folks you oh. mentioned to things like CTI recordings, kind of in the in the height of their yeah. their glory days. And uh, did you – was there something that happened to you that was – kind of moved you up into the that first call realm where you were able to get a ton of work? Was there some kind of exposure or some particular gig you had that really opened some doors for you or was it just kind of slow, steady? It was a, a more of a slow, steady thing. Uh uh, I remember coming out of school, and not I played clarinet in, in college, so I learned how to read pretty good on the clarinet. And guitar players are not known for their, you know, reading ability, especially in those days. Uh, they're all although they were great guys in the studio, like Tony Matola and Don Arnone, Al Cayol, All these great players were were great readers. But I, I, uh, 
I had enough reading ability, and there was a a, a, a jingle house that that didn't pay uh, all that much money, but we used to do jingles, and a lot of great players were called. And for some, uh, I got I got uh, connected with one of the guys writing all these jingles. His name was Sammy Fields, and uh, and I started reading, uh, uh, you know, guitar parts for little jingles and. And that got me connected in the in the studio world. Pretty soon, I was getting calls for bigger work, and and uh, and uh, and this was strictly electric guitar. But one of my teachers at that time, a guy named Chuck Wayne, great guitar player. Mm -hmm. uh, he used to be with George Shearing, the original, and he he had told me I should listen to the recordings of Julian Bream, this great classical guitarist. And I did, and my and uh, and I was just converted to and I started studying the classical guitar and uh, and uh, <clears throat> I started getting calls for studio work which is the Hubert Law stuff Sebesky called me for the and I started uh, just about that time the bossa nova hit and uh, became friendly with Joao Gilberto and Joao used to borrow my guitar when he performed I learned how to play bossa novas listening to Joao playing you know these records and and I got a call to do this album with Ahmad Jamal, and and I I had no, I had no idea about bossa nova, but I listened to it. and before I went to to, New, to Rudy Van Gelder's where Ahmad recorded that night, I I I learned how to play the the ball, and I went out and I did it. It was it was uh, I had a lot of m much more courage in those days <laughs> than I do now, but and um, uh, and and uh, I think learning the the nylon string instrument uh, and uh i started getting a lot of calls like and i was a good rhythm player too and i did the tonight show playing rhythm mostly and i think the the study of the the classical guitar although i don't really play a lot of the classical repertoire but the use of that instrument uh led me into solo playing and uh the solo playing has been uh you know, it's when I formed little duos. Or the first real great duo I had was with Michael Moore, great bass player, and uh, and he was a brilliant uh, soloist as well as arco arco playing. So I used to accompany his solos, and and uh, so the combination of the two instruments plus the electric, I think that was really <clears throat> uh, the duo with Michael uh, was really uh, the start of uh, my whole career as a as a soloist as a, as a sort of an artist like that. It's funny, as I was, uh, not to play into the jazz stereotype, but sitting in a coffee shop this morning on my way over here and uh, thinking about the things I was going to talk to you about, and uh, Joel Gilberto Dune came over the radio inside the, oh, uh, oh. the coffee shop, and I was thinking, well, that's a good omen for go <laughs> going to talk to Gene. <laughs> uh, that's and, not, uh, I appreciate you saying that, because that uh, that's a compliment. I really, uh, uh, I, uh, there was nobody... You know, those guys that play a lot fancier, you know, if I, I often say if you look at a, a sonogram of a pregnant Brazilian woman, there's a baby and a guitar in there. <laughs> These guys play so great, you know. There's nothing like a, a Brazilian guitar player playing that music. But the guy who, who captures the the most sensitive and most uh, uh, sound is so beautiful is Joao. He just plays that guitar, and he used to tell me, Gene, the, you know, the microphone is one inch too high. <laughs> or something like that. And I'd get, go adjust the mic, and he, he was a guest on The Tonight Show at that time. Or, or, you know, he was so fussy about the sound. And 
So <laughs> now you've recorded a lot of great solo records, done a ton of solo performance, and I wonder what special demands solo playing places on you, and what special joys there are for you in in playing solo. Well, you know, I I, I feel like the guitar is the whole orchestra, and uh, so it's the 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 demands of it are, are the challenge of of the challenge of using the that that instrument like that also trying to swing like that by yourself you know trying to make it feel like that playing a little bit of a bass line or whatever to to, to and to to have people snapping their finger when you're up there all alone it's also uh it's not as it's not as much fun as playing with another person you know but it's the challenge of it and if it comes off it's so rewarding you know but i keep i keep both aspects going and uh uh, playing with people is is always fun, and responding to accompanying a singer or or playing with a, I did albums with just me and tenor, and uh, and I I, I like to I like I just did a an album a part of an album with a cellist named Shelley, <laughs> named uh, Stephanie Winters, and mm. and Maria Schneider was in the booth producing it it was really nice just you know, to re reacquaint Murray and I Murray and I became friendly here when she was a student and, and I have continued to be a friend and she's another one of those Eastman graduates that I just did an album with a, a, a guitarist who's now the head of the jazz program at the University of Alabama Tom Wolf and he graduated from Eastman studied with me a little bit that's great and uh and and there's uh, so many uh, young guitar players have come through the Eastman program, like Peter Bernstein, and Paul Myers, and Freddie Bryant, and a lot of a lot of young players that I've had a you know maybe a couple of weeks with, and I feel like maybe I've helped them an inch or two, <laughs> and uh, encouraged them anyway. <clears throat> close by uh, just mentioning in this month's issue of Jazz Times, Bucky and John Pizzarelli do one of those before and after where you listen to the record and they don't tell you who it is mm -hmm. and you talk about it and then they tell you who it is and you talk about it more. And one of the records they played for them was one of your records. Yeah. If I'd been smarter, I would have brought it so I could tell you which one. But in any case, uh, Bucky, I think, immediately identifies who you are when he starts playing. And he says about you, he says, that's Gene and he's one of the family. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, what what is the what is the family? What do you think he what do you, what does he mean by that? What is the the family of jazz to which you you belong? Well, I I think uh, in in this in this case I think uh, we're really part of the Pizzarelli family in a sense, you know, because uh, John and I share the same birthday, 
Bucky and I have come through so many things, worked a lot together in the studios, and uh, in, and we've we've played together a lot. And there's this uh, the kind of brotherhood in a sense uh, that we we share. And his his daughter Mary Pizzarelli is a great friend of mine too. And uh, a part of the family in that sense is really part of like his, his family. And uh, and uh, I. I love all those people, his sons and and his daughters and his wife Ruth, and so and uh, and in the sen musical sense, I think it's all the stuff we've done together, and in the same situations, studio-wise, and and when, when if he wasn't there, I was there doing something or vice versa, and we we were a part of uh, this guitar family in those days. There there were about twenty guys that were getting all the work, you know, in those days. Uh, uh, some of the, the guys I mentioned, Al Cayola, Don Arnone, Al Casamenti, uh, 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 Vinnie Bell, uh, guitar players, that Howard, Howard, uh, Howard Collins, and, and, uh, and the, the, those, those guys were all, you know, part of this working family of guitar players that were quite busy. I did all of, in those days, I did all of Burt Backrack's recordings, and and Bucky was doing all of other, somebody else, and Tony and these guys, Tony was so so busy producing. And we used to see each other at this guitar club meetings, and there's a great story of Don Arnone, you got a minute, a half a minute? <laughs> Don Arnone was passing by one of the studios one day, fine sound it was, and uh, we had put amplifiers in every studio so we wouldn't have to take amplifiers. So and one day Segovia was recording and Don asked the producer if he could sit in and listen to the maestro play and the producer said, No, no way. He says, But I'm you know, I'm a professional musician. I'll 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 be I'll be no way, he says, No way. He says, Tell him you can't use the amplifier <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> So that was that was him, but uh, you know it was it was in in nowadays, I don't even know what's happening in the studios. It was so great to go into a studio, and, and there was usually a couple other guitar players, or even if I came in and just playing rhythm for Tony Bennett on one of these great recordings of his in Columbia Thirtieth Street, big big studio, and uh, where I did uh, recordings with Michelle Legrand and big orchestras, or uh, and um, <clears throat> worked for some great conductors and. He did a couple of movies, one with for John Williams called The Missouri Breaks, all in New York. And uh, it was a, a pleasure to be to be thrown into these situations. One of them that I'm most proud of is an album with Nancy Wilson called But Beautiful. And uh, I just, uh, you know, I walked into the studio. There was Ron Carter, T Hank Jones, and Grady Tate. And uh, what's going on? <laughs> and all of a sudden we were playing this beautiful music. And you never knew... Who well, who are you going to be with? And uh, and uh, it was just great. And nowadays, I think a lot of work is being done uh, by uh, individual producers with their synthesizers, and and they'll call a couple of guys in. But and the guitar, the guitar sound that's being used today is more of a more of a contemporary rock kind of stuff. And uh, I I just don't know how to do that. But for a while, I was on records with people like John Tropez, and. Uh, uh, 
and, and Hugh McCracken, great guitar players. And, but I just was utility, but they used to play all these really hip solo stuff. I can't even, I can't play the, the contemporary rock or blues. Those guys were great blues players too. So. Well, it's always a it's always a pleasure to hear you play, and I'm really really glad that you took this time to uh, sit down and tell us some stories. It's been a lot of fun. I feel honored, Jason. I mean, I mean, feel honored to be asked what I do, <laughs> talk about it, and uh, and I uh, just I feel really blessed. That's Gene Bertoncini from his album Acoustic Romance on the Sons of Sound label. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit thejazzsession.com where you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. You'll also find links to subscribe to the show. Please do that, and if you can, use iTunes. It's free, it works on Macs and PCs, and it guarantees that you'll always have the latest episode of the show whenever you want it. The site also features a link to the Music Maker Relief Foundation, this month's Cause of the Month. Please click on it, take out your credit card, and give them some money. Thank you. I write interviews and reviews for AllAboutJazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. You'll find those linked at thejazzsession.com. You'll also find links to the reviews and interviews. Uh, there are no reviews, I just said that out of habit. To the interviews that I write for The Guide, the weekly entertainment magazine on Hilton Head Island, edited by my good friend music writer Jeff Frabel. If you'd like to contact The Jazz Session, you can send me an email. It's easy to remember. It's just jason at thejazzsession.com. There's also a contact page on the website. 
You can call me at 585-473-5304, and you can join the mailing list, which you'll find at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the things I'm up to, including the guests who are on this show. The theme music for the Jazz Session is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. Thank you so much for coming by. Really glad to have you here. I hope you'll support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and I really hope you'll come back again next time for another conversation about jazz right here on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.